I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.21, Maud of Wales, The Reluctant Queen. Last time, we saw the most British of princesses, Maud of Wales, fall in love with a Dane, if not with his country, and seemed set for a life split between her palace in Copenhagen and her country cottage in Norfolk. It sounded pretty sweet. But then, quite out of the blue, the newly founded independent nation of Norway offered her husband the chance to become King Haakon VII, an opportunity he couldn't turn down. Today, we look at her time as queen of a newly formed country in one of the most turbulent times in modern European history. But first, I'd like to give another reminder about the stupidly long cycle ride that I'm going to be doing for charity. As a reminder, this is a 100-mile ride through London and Surrey in aid of a youth homelessness charity called Centrepoint. This is now only a week away, and we're still a little ways off our target... I would be so incredibly grateful for anything you could all give. Again, there's a link in the show notes and on the Facebook page. I would also like to thank my patrons, who are so instrumental in keeping this show on the air. I'd especially like to thank my newest patrons, Joy and Emily. If you'd like to support the show, like Joy and Emily, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Today, a king of Norway comes to make his home in the Norwegian capital. Elected by a free people to occupy, conjointly with free men, the first place in the land. The Norwegian people love their liberty, their independence and their autonomous government, 
which they themselves won. It will be the glory of the king and his highest pleasure to protect this sentiment, finding his support in the people themselves. This is why the Norwegian people hail you today with profound joy and cry, Long live the king and queen of Norway. This was the welcome that Harkin and Maud received from the Norwegian Prime Minister when they arrived in Norway for the first time. It was an expression of welcome, but also one of warning. Some rulers around Europe believed that they ruled by the grace of God. Others, due to the illustriousness of their forebears, Harkin and Maud were being told very clearly here that they ruled at the behest of the Norwegian people and that this permission could be withdrawn at any time. This is not to say that they weren't given a rapturous welcome. A British journalist present reported that, quote, None who heard the cheering which greeted King Harkin and his queen, and in particular little Prince Olaf, and saw the faces of those who cheered could fail to realise that they were indeed the chosen of the people. There were a few mishaps along the way. On this first procession, Three-year-old Prince Olaf, getting a bit bored of all this pageantry, ran off the coach and started a fight with a small child in the crowd, stole his flag, and then hurried back to his parents. Luckily, the crowds thought this was absolutely hilarious. A few days later, Harkin and Maud were driving through the streets when their carriage hit a small girl. The royal couple took the child back to the palace for a check-up, and then sent her home in the royal carriage with a present and their apologies. A more superstitious people and couple might have taken these as bad omens, but their kindness and generosity ensured that they were mere footnotes. Maud was always a bit of an introvert, never especially comfortable with being the centre of attention. She wrote to her sister-in-law, May, quote, Behold, I am a queen. Who would have thought it? And I am the very last person to be stuck on a throne. I am actually getting accustomed to being called your majesty, and I often pinch myself to feel if I am not dreaming. Of course, her breeding made her eminently suitable to be a queen, and it is a mark of how much she had shunned the public aspects of her life to this point that all of this was such a surprise. While her husband sits about establishing himself as king, Maud had to deal with the somewhat more tangible task of figuring out somewhere to live. Remember, the kings of Norway had ruled from abroad now for many centuries, and so while there was a royal palace in Christiana, which was what Oslo was called back then, it was there for purely ceremonial purposes. It had never been designed to be actually lived in. It didn't even have running water in the main part of the building, and the Swedes had taken all the furniture with them. Harkin and Maud, of course, had possessions, but these were designed to fit in their modest apartments in Copenhagen, not to fill a proper palace. Imagine having to fill a palace with only the things currently in your house. She therefore supervised a grand renovation of the old place, giving it a distinctly English flavour, including a luscious rose garden. She also joined her husband in his attempts to assimilate, including by throwing herself into Norwegian lessons and, most importantly, taking up skiing. Along with the royal palace, they were also given a chalet in Kongseteren outside the city. It was a homely home away from home, where the royal family could be themselves and ski to their heart's content. But Maud's favourite place was Big Doi, 
a country pile with great views over the city. This was her Norwegian Appleton, and she spent as much time there as she could. I've managed to find some videos of Maud for this show, and I'm going to be introducing some of them to you in through the course of the episode. The first one is some footage that I found of her skiing with her husband and son. Seven months after their arrival in the kingdom, Harkin and Maud were officially crowned as king and queen. The ceremony took place at Trondheim, the traditional site for the coronation of Norway's medieval monarchs. It will shock you to hear that Maud dreaded the whole thing. She wrote to her sister-in-law, May, quote, It all haunts me like an awful nightmare, this coronation, and that it is just to be us of all people. Think of me alone on my throne, having a crown to be shoved on my head, which is very small and heavy, by the aged bishop and a minister, and also has to be put on by them before the whole crowd, and oils be placed on my head, hands and bosom. Gracious, it will be awful. The whole thing was preceded by a great royal progress around Norway, culminating with their ceremonial entry into Trondheim. Royalty flocked in from around Europe, including Maud's brother, the Prince of Wales, as well as dignitaries from as far afield as Japan and the United States. One country conspicuous by their absence was Sweden. They were still smarting from their king's ejection from the throne. The two were crowned one after another, with Harkin going first and then Maud. Dressed in white satin, she endured the whole event as described in that letter to May, after which the congregation cried out, Long live the king and queen! They emerged to massive crowds, including boatloads of tourists who had travelled to see this event. No one could be in any doubt just how popular this monarchy was. This extraordinary year was topped off by a state visit back to Blighty. Maud had, of course, been back to home country many times since she had left for Scandinavia, but this was the first time that she had come back in such an official capacity. She and Harkin were greeted off their ship at Portsmouth by her brother, the Prince of Wales, and a full Royal Marine band. They were then taken to Windsor, where Harkin was inducted into the Order of the Garter, and then a formal state dinner was held in their honour at Buckingham Palace. Maud had left home as a princess, but she was greeted and honoured now as a queen. For a new monarchy like this, to be doused in all this pomp and circumstance by one of the world's great royal houses and most popular kings was absolutely massive and generated a huge amount of good press for Norway and its new king and queen. Over the next few years, they acted as something of a dignified royal cheerleader couple, visiting all the major foreign capitals to drum up support for the newly independent nation of Norway and to solidify its standing in Europe. Maud seemed to have a bit of a habit, though, for getting into accidents, as when in Paris with the French president and his wife, their carriage horses fell off a bridge. The French press were very impressed with Maud's show of concern for the injured coachman, especially when compared with the president's wife, who apparently wasn't all that bothered. In 1910, all of Europe was absolutely shocked when King Edward VII suddenly died of a heart attack. While a deeply flawed man, his affable personality had charmed the continent, and his loss was deeply felt. But his children missed their beloved father the most. 
Maud travelled with great haste with her husband to London as soon as she heard the news and joined what seemed like every head of Europe, crowned or otherwise, at his funeral. There is newsreel surviving of the procession, and the scale of the whole thing is absolutely breathtaking. Around two million people line the streets of the capital, watching a sombre yet magnificent funeral procession. I've put some footage in the show notes. Try not to be as distracted as I was by the magnificent moustaches on show. Maud was at the centre of all the ceremonies, stood beside her grieving mother, dignified and calm, clad all in black, a rock for Queen Alexandra. So there is no doubt that internationally, Maud was an enormous success. But what about at home in Norway? Well, becoming a queen didn't change the fundamental part of her personality that loved privacy and shunned the spotlight. But that didn't mean that she didn't have an impact at all in the years before the outbreak of war. For example, she championed the participation of women in sport by very visibly enjoying tennis, swimming and winter sports such as skiing and tobogganing. Before, these had been seen very much as male pursuits, but seeing their queen partake in them encouraged other women to do them as well. She even managed to make some friends, unlike in Copenhagen, gathering a select circle of ladies for small parties and attending the theatre together. Her time on the throne, indeed, was remarkably free of scandal and turmoil. Think of all that Sophia had gone through in her brief time as a queen, and we haven't even got to the craziness that would occur in the reigns of her other cousins, such as Tsarina Alexandra and Queen Anna of Spain. But one thing they did all share was an absolute horror when the Balkan powder cake exploded in June 1914, leading to the outbreak of the First World War. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in the summer of 1914 led to a domino collapse of mobilisation and war declaration as the great powers of the continent followed their allies into war. Yet, for the moment, the second-tier nations of Europe held their fire. Although no one expected the war to be quite as tragic and destructive as it turned out to be, everyone knew that this slugging fest between Europe's largest and most powerful militaries was going to be bloody and brutal, and that it was probably best, for the moment at least, to stay out of it and see how it went. Norway, of course, was close to the British, but it had absolutely no intention of entering the conflict. It could offer little to the war effort, and so it was content to offer some help to the Entente powers, but not to take part formally. While her cousin Alexandra would be brought down because of her country's entry into the war, and Sophia would be ousted because hers did not, Maud's popularity only grew during the war years. This did not mean that this time was a bundle of laughs. Purely from a personal point of view, she was devastated that attacks on shipping meant that it was far too unsafe for her to visit England at any point for the duration of the war. She was also sick with worry, as so many members of her family served during the war. Her nephew, Albert, the future George VI, served in the Royal Navy as a midshipman, 
and was present at the Battle of Jutland, and she had a myriad of cousins fighting on both sides of the conflict. She wrote to her sister May, now Queen Mary of the United Kingdom, quote, How appalling this war is, and how my thoughts naturally return to home and all you dear ones. I feel so far away and lonely. It is terrible being away from one's own beloved country at such a ghastly moment. With what pride one reads of the splendid way the dear old country has behaved. As the war dragged on, her feelings only intensified. At the end of 1916, she wrote to Mary, quote, I missed you all so much on my birthday, and felt cheerless thinking of it being the third year in a row where I have not been home to see you all. It feels tougher for each year that passes, and the future seems so uncertain, and this terrible war is continuing with all its misery and suffering. Like so many of her other relatives, she threw herself into charity work to support the war wounded. She worked hard to raise money to provide food, fuel and clothing, as well as medicines for the needy. She chaired a committee made up of ladies from across Norway that met once a fortnight to come up with ideas for fundraising, to organise events and to distribute the money raised. She never lost, though, that profound homesickness that afflicted her during the conflict. And so she was absolutely overjoyed when news of the armistice reached Norway in November 1918. As soon as she could, she travelled back to Britain to see her family and beloved Appleton once again. The end of the war saw an absolute dynastic bonfire, as the mighty Romanovs, Hohenzollerns, Habsburgs and Ottomans all fell, along of course with the Greek monarchy, and so Maud had a lot to be thankful for that her place was secure. She had brought her love of simplicity and calm to her style as queen, and this headed off a lot of the unpopularity that had helped to weaken other monarchies across Europe, even those that had not taken part in the war. In 1924, she saw her only son, Olaf, off to university at, where else, Oxford, where she looked on in pride as he turned quickly into a quintessentially English gentleman. He also competed for Norway in the 1928 Olympic Games in Amsterdam, winning the gold medal in sailing. She could not have been a prouder mum. Olaf was very close to his parents, and said that he could never have been as successful in sport and in life if it were not for his mother's encouragement. She also encouraged him in his choice of wife, Martha of Sweden. As a dynastic match, it was absolutely perfect, as it would bring together two nations that had been distrustful of each other ever since Norway had declared its independence. Following the wedding in the newly renamed capital city of Oslo, Maud wrote, quote, The young couple are radiantly happy. Martha really is a charming girl, so glad and considerate, pretty and graceful, and she absolutely adores Olaf. He, who has always lived with us during these 25 years, and who has been a totally wonderful son, and never given us one day of grief. He deserves all the happiness he can get, and I really believe that Martha truly is the right one for him, and she will become a great asset to him. Olaf and Martha would go on to have three children, including Harold, the current reigning king of Norway, and by all accounts, Maud was an absolutely doting grandmother, 
sending photographs to all her relations, raving at how cute and adorable they were. Following her eldest granddaughter's second birthday party, which she herself threw, Maud wrote to Queen Mary, quote, She loved her toys and was really very good letting all the children play with her things. We gave them a big tea and they ate enormously, which made all the mothers rather nervous. When her mother died in 1925, it brought all her surviving siblings, George, Louise and Victoria, much closer together. All of them, though, were in poor health, quite unlike their aunts, Louise and Beatrice, who were still pretty active despite their advanced age. Louise was the first to pass away in January 1931, followed by Victoria in 1935, and then George the following year in 1936. There's a video in the show notes of her and Harkin attending his funeral, this time delightfully with some commentary. She was there draped in heavy black cloth to mourn her last remaining sibling. George's death led to the brief, ill-fated reign of his son, Edward VIII. He was very much the heir of his grandfather, Edward VII, forever a disappointment and embarrassment to his parents, and then he went and fell in love with an American divorcee named Wallace Simpson. When told by Parliament that he must choose between love and the crown, he chose love. Maud, like the rest of the family, was absolutely outraged, refusing in the letter to even call Simpson by her name. Quote, Where is she? Do wish something could happen and prevent them from marrying. How sad it is that he has ruined his life. Fear later, he will be sorry for what he has done and given up. It makes me quite low to think of him banished out there, and that he has given up everything of his own free will, all on account of one bad woman who has hypnotised him. In this, she was entirely supportive of her great friend, Queen Mary, who continued to love her eldest son, but threw her weight behind supporting her second son, Bertie, who became King George VI. Maud saw a lot of herself in her nephew and his family, writing, quote, Thank goodness dear Bertie and Elizabeth are so devoted to each other, and great help to each other, and they are so popular, and so are the darling children. For some, the British royal family seem entirely heartless for the way that they treated Edward and Wallace, but the example of Maud is actually rather instructive here. Maud never wanted to be a princess, still less a queen. Neither had Harkin wanted to become a king. And yet they had done so because, for them and for their families, duty mattered more than anything else ever could. Edward took the opposite path, setting aside his duty to marry the woman he loved. From a modern viewpoint, we can entirely understand Edward's actions. But at the time it was an absolute anathema. Maud lingered in England following the coronation, and after a brief summer sojourn in Norway, returned to Appleton in the autumn of 1938. However, she fell ill, and was diagnosed with an abdominal obstruction. Her condition deteriorated fast, and just after midnight on the 20th November, she died suddenly in her sleep. She was just shy of 69 years old. Harkin issued a statement that read, quote, God has taken the Queen from me this night, and it is a heavy loss for me to bear, though I understand it is his will. 
Her husband and her British family all flocked to London, as thousands in the UK and millions across Norway mourned her loss. One of the most eloquent tributes came from the Norwegian Prime Minister, who said in a public statement, quote, All who knew her are aware what a warm-hearted and magnificent character she was, and the present cabinet and I personally have learned to value her burning interest in the people of this country, and in many social undertakings. We sympathise in the sorrow which has fallen upon the royal family, and feel sure that the whole Norwegian people takes part in that sorrow and sympathy. After lying in state at her chartered home of Marlborough House, her body was taken back to Norway aboard HMS Royal Oak. She had expressed a wish to be buried in Britain, but her wishes had been overruled. She was a queen of Norway, and it was only proper that she be laid to rest there. Even in death, duty had to come first. In the last of the videos accompanying this episode, I've put some newsreel footage of the funeral. Today, her body lies in the mausoleum of Akashus, where, in 1957, she will be joined by her husband. As a tribute to her, when Norway declared a portion of Antarctica to be their territory in 1939, they named it Queen Maudland, with the water surrounding it being named Harkin the Seventh Sea. So even in geography, they would live side by side. Her name also lives on the Norwegian royal family, as her great-granddaughter, Princess Martha Louise, named her eldest daughter Maud Angelica. Of all of the granddaughters of Queen Victoria that we will be covering, Maud had by far the quietest life. She married into a small kingdom, and then unexpectedly became queen of an even smaller one. She had no wish for a public role, and there was no expectation that she needed to have one. She was a dignified woman who stepped up when she needed to, but was quite content living her life on her own terms. She died just before the continent of Europe erupted again into war, and so didn't have to join her husband in exile, worry about her son as he fought against Nazi invaders, or weep for the occupation of Norway and the damage inflicted on her beloved home country by German bombers. She was, by any measure, a successful queen. But I will leave you here with one final thought. The only reason we think that is because of circumstance. It was only by chance that she became a queen, but equally it was chance that meant she was queen of a small, democratic country, where her lack of interest in participating in public life didn't matter, where she could be a mother and charity worker only, and that was enough. This wasn't an option for queens of larger, more autocratic countries. Countries like Russia. Russia. 